Hey, Tori. Hey, playwrights. Welcome to Hey, Playwright, a podcast about playwriting and life. Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori. That was a very funny look on your face. I'm not sure what was happening. I was, I was looking <laughs> at the screen and I'm like, what? It seems like we've been talking for longer than we have. So I don't know. That was very weird. Sorry. <laughs> hey, Tori. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> so you have been traveling. Oh, I have been traveling. Take it, taking the world by storm. Uh, I don't know about taking it the world by storm, but I have I have been to some places recently. So I've uh, yeah I've been doing like I did uh, you know I went to to Olympia to see the Secret Garden and as as my social media will suggest I was quite pleased with what I saw. Um, and then, uh, and then I was just in Silverthorne, Colorado at Lake Dillon Theater, and we had a reading of Loteria Game On, which is crazy because, um, I feel like that play has been in my life for a long time, but this was the first live public-facing reading ever, and it was the first time that we had children in the audience. Not even my kids, you know that, I, that the kids haven't even heard it, Tori? the the my own spawn Wait. this is like a weird thing because normally i suck them into everything but they have not been a part of this play um maybe i was Wait. i was too Wait. i was too precious with it tori i was like no i have to get i have to get seasoned out even for our little like you know how you and i do these little informal readings like <laughs> they never, i always brought in professional actors so they have not heard this piece ever, which is very weird because, you know, now I just bring them into everything. But again, I was feeling so precious about it at the time um, th what, that like I've had wait, really so great actors read it, which is, you know, we say like, oh, maybe not get great actors because great actors do wonders with mediocre scripts. <laughs> yeah, but that script was never mediocre. So... All this to say, there were kids in the audience, and there's a moment where one of the characters has to say something, and he gets it wrong, and then a kid in the audience speaks up, and I was like, I'm dead. I Just kill me now. I can be dead. Like, that's it. I'm good. That was it. This is the end of my life. I've, I have what I need to, to have fulfilled my destiny as a human being telling this, these kinds of stories. So, yes. Yes. And that's why you write plays <laughs> that are so I can, accessible so I can for, die. for all ages, right? <laughs> yes. No, <laughs> no, no. But so that, so that you can be in the room with uh, the next generation. Yes. Right? And hear their reactions and what they're responding to and... Perhaps they will be inspired to go and write a play. You just never know. Never know. I hope but, so, yeah. But but just having them engage with the story, that's really, really cool. Yeah. So one of the actors, Jonathan Contreras, is a musician, and he was playing guitar through... Yes, I know. I know. Throughout the reading Oh my gosh. Yes, yes. Well, no wonder you felt like you could just die and be done. Yes, it was really, It was a really dream, right? Beautiful, yeah. <laughs> it was really, really beautiful. So... Yeah, you had, you had the best of all worlds. You had your play being read, music, live music, kids in the audience who could relate to the story. Did you do a talk back? Yes. We did do a talk back. Oh, did so did the kids ask you questions? They did, yeah. Ah, I love it. I was also able to give a shout out to that kid. I was like, oh, you said the thing and it made me so happy. I don't think I said I could die to that kid because I didn't want to. Well, that's probably but I good. But I said it to everybody else pretty much. I was like, I could die now. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, but all good things. And uh, how are you? What's going on in your world? 
Oh my goodness. Um, I, I, because we talk in between, even through text message, I feel like I share so much that then by the time we go to record, I go, I don't know if anything's happened, but I will say I'm taking a workshop right now with Stephen Dietz through the Playwright Center. And uh, it, it's, it's such a wealth of information, um, new, new tools that he's sharing. And it's, it's, it's nothing like earth shattering, like, oh, my God, you know, because he says even at the top of the class, like, there's no there's no trick, right? <laughs> to, to writing a play, it's a hard thing to do. But I really love s some of the information, some of the the tools that he is sharing to really liven up a story, make sure that he calls it motion. And I, I like that. So I'm enjoying, enjoying the workshop very much. There's three, there's three in total. It's a three series workshop. I signed up for all three. There, there is still time, I believe, as of Monday, they were saying at the end of class, if you want to sign up for one of the next workshops, you can. Oh, so wow. okay. I will put that in the show notes because there is one on Saturday and then the following Monday. But uh, I, I'm enjoying them very much. That is so. very cool. And he is one of the most prolific playwrights and constantly produced and has written tons of fantastic articles for American Theatre Magazine. He's been doing this a long time and he's he's pretty great. I will say that that we learned something that this is apparently this is submission season oh yeah now i know yes. for next year yes. that i will mark my calendar that i'm unavailable from september to november yeah <laughs> but seriously there are so many applications due in october and november it's like the great plains theater conference um there was one that was due what's it? val the the one in Valdez. Alaska Valdez Valdez yeah and then there's New Harmony there there was uh, Hedgebrook um, I'm trying to think because there's so many other ones um, uh, there's a Tennessee Williams one the Lanford Wilson opportunity yeah the Lanford Wilson one wait a minute there and there's also the McDowell residency, the O'Neill at the end of September. Some of these are in September. So it's September to early November. The, tons of submissions. And, you know, for some of them, I just, I missed, I didn't have the right material to submit to those opportunities. But I now know what that window is so that I can be prepared next year. Next year. But for the ones I'm able to submit to, I'm really just pushing forward. I'm moving ahead. Good. Today, I applied <laughs> to go to Belfast in March for my school. <laughs> Part of my program is that I have to do a global studies class. And so there is a um, there is a program or there's a class that's talking about um, education in a post conflict environment, and so it's it's going wow. to be looking at the Catholics and the Protestants and how the segregated um, how they navigate a segregated um, schooling system. So so I'll find out in November if I got into that. But everybody, cross your fingers because okay. I really. I'm really curious about that experience. And my friend Anne, my best friend Anne, you know Anne, um, yeah. just went to Belfast. It's super weird because she just went to Belfast and was just telling me about um, the complexities of of Northern Ireland. And um, so I'm really curious about that. Yeah. So Tori, we've said it many, yeah. many, many times that this podcast would not exist if... Actually, I don't know if we've said it many times, but maybe we've said it many times to each other, but maybe not on the podcast. No, probably on the podcast. But it wouldn't exist if we didn't like each other as much, right? And, I mean, we were friends before the pandemic. 
Yeah, we were actually pretty good friends before the pandemic. Never mind. I was gonna yeah, we I were. was gonna do this whole thing about how like we found each other during the pandemic, but that's not true at all. That it would be a misrepresentation of our relationship. But what we did identify is a codependency that required us <laughs> to do certain things, including start a podcast. Um and and I really I definitely feel that without um you in my life I would have been a little less sane going through this like I feel like you were definitely a very important part of the pandemic journey for me and um and certainly this podcast was was also a very uh, grounding force for us but also but I think it was that not just because we got to talk about theater but we also got to hang out with each other um, without hanging out with each other. We couldn't be each other's physical presence, but we were regularly just being in company and being goofballs and stuff, right? Oh, yes. No, ab- absolutely. I, I, feel, I feel the same way. It, it, was, it was just something to look forward to, um, continuing to have conversations about theater and theater-making and all the creatives involved, and you, first and foremost, especially when we weren't getting to venture out and be in community in person. And, you know, we, I, I bring this up all the time, because it's something you've said that has really stuck with me is that theater people are, we're problem solvers, our artists in general are problem solvers. And that it, we saw that happen during COVID. We saw people immediately, the theater people were making Zoom theater. Okay, that happened almost immediately. We were figuring out how to do it. And our guest today, same thing, a problem solver, just, you know, put like boots to the ground, came up with an idea, had and and organized and made things happen. We're going to talk about it on the podcast. I'm not going to talk about it too much here, but I wanted to introduce her. Christina Wong is a Pulitzer Prize finalist in drama, and her show, Sweatshop Overlord, is going on right now at La Jolla Playhouse until October 16th. So here is that conversation. Hey, playwrights. (laughs) Hey, Christina! (laughs) Oh, wonderful. You launched us right in. I love it. Yes. uh, Oh, we are so excited to talk to you today. Uh, We had the opportunity to see your show, and I'm still processing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Did you see it live, or you saw it streaming? No, we saw it live. We saw it. Yeah, New York. Mm-hmm. Oh, in La Jolla. Yeah. It was like a couple of weeks ago, right, Tori? Yeah, yeah. We live oh. in San Diego, so Mabel is traveling right now. Oh, that's because why. Okay. she she it, she's a we're both playwrights, and she has something being workshopped right now in Colorado. So that's why. Oh, congratulations! She, yeah. So, but we did get to see it in person. We get and- why it was a Pulitzer Prize shortlist. Like, like totally, oh, totally, like, oh my gosh, incredible. Um, so we <laughs> will, we will gush some more later. But let's get started with like, how did you begin your journey as a storyteller? As a oh theater? man, you know, I, I had no idea that what I do for a living exists existed until I got to college and and in college and I think in college I was misled that you could make a living making theater because you have all these cool (laughs) professor types that are like like nursing coffees and walking doing leisurely walks around the campus and I was like wow that's what I want to be a performance artist when I grow up um but yeah because I before that point had done you know in in high school uh my so I went to a Catholic girls high school in San Francisco um because I didn't get into Lowell High School which is like the the esteemed public high school which is merit based and and um I missed by like one point it was this they they had a it's very controversial because they had a uh very specific race based admissions and I'm Chinese American and for some reason it like because Chinese people in San Francisco are so smart. They had to <laughs> create these quota systems. And I missed that quota by like one point. And, and, and it was like, 
it was devastating because my whole life I was told you're going to go to Lowell, you're going to go to Lowell. And I ended up at Mercy High School because um, it felt like uh, the, the sign schools I, I was at, I, I, was, I was just nervous about going to that school and somehow ended up at a Catholic girls school, even though I'm not, not Catholic. The school has since closed down. It closed down in 2020. And I'm on the Wikipedia page of a steamed alumni. And the other steamed alumni is Kimberly Guilfoyle, Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. So that's that's how I'm doing, folks. <laughs> yeah. That's how well I'm doing, everybody. Lack of enrollment, it closed down. And me and Kimberly Guilfoyle are the most esteemed alumni from Mercy oh my High School. Gosh. But anyway, but I, I will say what was great about that experience was I was introduced to theater. And um, uh, I was quite shy I did speech and debate and theater, but we were always doing other people's works. It was like, you know, Neil Simon, like (laughs) lives by the residuals of all high school, you know, I mean, now he's not alive, but yeah, right. Like he, um, but those were the sort of plays, My Fair Lady. I was Miss Adelaide in Guys and Dolls, right? And I had thought, wow, I love this because instead of, um, seeking help and getting therapy and working my problems people can just look at me and <laughs> and I can play other people and this is this is this is so great uh but you know it, it was always very clear in my mind as someone who's uh this is in the 90s as a Chinese American that like I I basically would be if I pursued a life as an actor I'd be at the mercy of um casting people or directors who had the vision to see me as a white character, basically, because those were all the characters I'd be playing. So it wasn't until I got to UCLA and I was contemplating doing a theater major, but I was just like, I don't want to be in an environment where I'm just competing with my classmates all the time and I'm at the mercy of similar roles. Um, But I was introduced to a whole world of solo performance and... um, uh, and people who write their own work. And, and, uh, I didn't do the theater major. I was in world arts and cultures, which is a very, like one of those kind of odd majors and nobody knows what it is when you, but, but it does, you know, it's a great department. There are performance artists in that major. There are choreographers in that major dancers. Uh, I think I said that, um, uh, film, uh, ethnographers and people who just study things that are related to culture and art. And, but there was just a lot of like what I would say, quote unquote, weird stuff, right? Like stuff happening on rooftops. And I took a class with Peter Sellers called the invisible world, Peter Sellers, um, who was a, you know, theater director. And he, and he was so like, I look, I was like, dude, I want to be that guy. Cause like, he doesn't grade. Everyone gets an A. Everyone flocks to him like this guru, right? And <laughs> and 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 people just want to be in his presence, even though it's an automatic A, you know. And he just says these things, and you're like, oh, you just listen to him, right? He's so so zen and cool. And I was like, I want to be. I want to do what he does, like because because basically, I was in therapy, sort of like because UCLA gives you free, eight free therapy sessions. None of it was useful, what? right? Like I would just cry my eyes out to therapists. <laughs> who would just stare at me and, 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 and then I, and then I just felt more traumatized cause I just like relive my thing, but I would do create these crazy performances in Peter Sellers class where I like cover myself in masking tape and tell like weird stories <laughs> for like my, you know, 20 classmates. And I was like, I feel more free doing that than, you know, whatever. So this is the long way of saying, this is how I had this really naive idea that I'm going to be a performance artist when I grow up. I also had done a documentary in a class on Denise Uehara, who's a performance artist. And, um, and I was like, wow, <laughs> I'd watch, I watched her archive performances and I would add the, uh, me and my classmates were editing them into our little five minute documentary. And, and I was like, it's so cool. It's like all this like traumatizing stuff has happened to her, but she's made it so beautiful on stage. So yeah, somewhere between all that, I decided that this was going to be a viable life, um, you know, realized in my twenties, Oh, you can't just be traumatized and like scream about it on stages. Like actually there needs to be craft. And, <laughs> and then, you know, I guess beyond my twenties, like after doing Wong Tso over the cuckoo's nest, which explored depression and suicide um, among Asian American women, but probably mostly myself. Um, I, uh, was like, oh, I should probably explore other things because this will destroy me to just mine pain and trauma uh, on stages for a living. So 
that was a sort of a flip, flippant, crazy way of uh, telling you how I got here. Pulitzer Prize finalist, everybody. Hello. Wow. That is amazing. I love hearing that. I love, and I love that, that this was like the way, like it was almost like a tunnel vision path forward that solo performance was going to be. I remember my my friend Melissa. I did not take this class from Tim Miller. Tim Miller um, is also, you know, NEA four and and um, uh, you know, was always constantly naked on stage. He's a solo performer, and he taught a class with four students. And I only watched the final thing, but but Melissa was in it in the class. And I remember her on the we were on the lawn at UCLA, and she was like, "Dude, we could become performance artists when we grow up." She went on to law school. She totally lied to me. <laughs> He totally led me on to believe like, yeah, this is a thing. We could be like Tim Miller. We could be like Peter Sellers. Like I'm the only dumb dumb who ran in this direction going, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because we grow up. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because San Francisco has a really strong solo performance it community. Does, I, but yeah. I was not part of it because I'm Chinese American. I was like, my existence of in growing up in San Francisco, to me, there are two San Francisco's when you're Chinese American. It's like you're living a double life, right? Like you're like in this world where there's no sex and 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 you and every human is created by immaculate conception and you have to study all the time and there's no shame. But you're like in a city where there's so much there's there's drugs, there's uh, there's a, a, a the condor. Well, I think they've taken down this sign where the light up nipples of, on a strip club. You, you know what I'm talking about? There are these red light bulb things, and um, I don't know. It like it was. It's like there's there's like this double life that that I felt like I was living my entire life as a Chinese American to to be like you know I had to be this 4.0 student, but I was also like completely repressed and, and finding all these crazy ways to you know let out my bad side. <laughs> so solo no, but yeah unfortunately yeah i did i did i was not around those the world of that kind of theater at least when i was in high school i was on the other side of the city yeah the other side of the city where where were you well towards stonestown the mall oh, um, but yeah. yeah i think where you're thinking is like the mission district and where all the small theaters were yeah no i was not um it's not like i got out to do that. And I was still, you know, so young at the time. It's not like I was like 15 years old watching naked people on stages. So like I got to, I went to UCLA and that's when I got to see all the, the naked people screaming about their pain and was like, yeah. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah. I was there in San Francisco in the, um, in the late nineties, I was operations manager of the marsh, which yes. is in the mission. So when you said the mission, I went, Oh yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's so. completely where I would have hung out if I had known that what I was going to do one day existed. I would have been so horrified. I think I was so young, and I think I would have just been like, "What?" But like it, I, I don't know. It, like musical theater was just enough to get my rocks off, and then and then it was in college. It was like, "Whoa, what the so, hell?" How did your family respond when you? Not well. Not well. No. Um, I mean, they love this show. My mother loves this show. She looks so good in this show. She looks like cool mommy. Um, but no, I mean, I, that's why I stayed in LA. Cause it was like, I, I, I had contemplated moving back, you know, after college, but I'd like to describe like, Oh, I ran away from home at 22 or rather stayed in LA at 22 so that I could be around this community that I was getting introduced to and feel like I could be a little bit of more of my freer self. But no, she's, she's still will text message me and was like, can you take that post down? Can you blah, blah, blah. Can, can you not talk about me in the blah, blah, blah. I'm like, ah, yeah. good material though. I know. Yeah. They're supportive now. I mean, let me tell you, they know what a Pulitzer is. I've heard <laughs> of it. When that announcement came out in May, oh, they were, they were like walking the streets. They were they were like Jehovah's Witnesses, like spreading the good word, you know. The, they um, had the flyers out. Yeah, no, they yeah they. So I think, and the billboards in La Jolla right now have also helped. I was like, great, I don't have to go to nursing school. But you know, even up until a few years ago, my mother when I uh, so 
you know, my show before this, I ran for public office um, just to see what that would be like. And then, and then wrote a rally campaign show around it. And my mother was like, you can't run, you can't run. They're going to dig up stuff from my past. And I'm like, what, what are they going to dig up? And she's like, I fell asleep once in a class. And I'm like, that's no, nobody, no, no, this is not like this Herschel Walker moment where (laughs) that's very different. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. So so she was so somehow that conversation of instead of running for office, you could use your creative skills. Maybe you could work for Google and be like a creative leader there. And I was like, that is completely different than running for an elected office. So I mean, they're very supportive. They come to my shows and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. I think now it took over twenty years, but I finally got them. <laughs> I, I would like to think I would have gotten here earlier with their support, but whatever, whatever. Cannot scream. Cannot scream at what could have been. <laughs> so you mentioned um, Pulitzer. Did you know when well, you- I mentioned it all the time? Yeah, but I, but <laughs> I, I would too. Oh, I, yeah, I would. T- I would like wear <laughs> the t-shirt. Yeah, no, well, but I mean like made. Yes, I am getting yeah. made. Yes, for sure. But like, did you foresee? No. Okay. Can I tell you the story? Is sick. You can yes. apply for a Pulitzer as a playwright. And um, what? What? It's- yes. If your play premiered that year, and everyone should know this, you it's a submission fee. So um, I think most theaters in New York know you can submit on behalf of the playwright. And I will say, having swept most of the awards this year, that I'm understanding how skewed the award system is to New York playwrights. Like I was like, wow, this is, there is a system in place to give out awards and the pipeline comes out of New York. Unfortunately, unfortunately, right. I, I mean, I don't know what the fortunate part is, but <laughs> I mean, fortunately in the sense that, 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 that these, you know, systems of merit exist, but it's like, if you think about towns like, like Los Angeles, we just lost the ovation awards because LA stage Alliance doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, um, you can submit for a Pulitzer, which I had no idea. I thought it was like this magic thing. You just get a call from, I think it's 50 or 75 bucks. Uh, the play had to premiere that year. You submit a copy of the play, a recording and um, a description and the committee will read it. If, if, you know, um, I, uh, it was the same year that Hamilton was up for the Pulitzer and ended up winning. Um, I was robbed, I tell you. But I submitted my play, The Wong Street Journal. My best friend, Brian Feldman, who's a who's a very experimental um, uh, performer who does this play called Dishwasher, which is not much of a play. It's, it's basically a one-sheet description of he goes to your house, does your dishes, and he'll spend a long time doing the dishes. And then you hand him a monologue. He prepares and does the monologue like in your living room. And then, and then you tell him, is he a better dishwasher or actor? That's the piece. So he submitted two. So the whole joke was we're going to, we're going to be Pulitzer contenders. And, and I happen to be in New York when the Pulitzer um, announcement is made. Uh, And, and then this is pre pandemic. So it was made at Columbia college, but only for the press. So I got a press pass from NBC Asian America, and I was going to write them an article about what it was because my mother was so excited about me winning the Pulitzer, and I was like, no, 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 Hamilton's going to win. And she's like, you don't know that. You don't know. And she was like getting so excited. She was like, I I could tell people I have a Pulitzer Prize winner. Because she actually did really like that show, The Wall Street Journal. She's like, I, 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 I'm going to tell all my friends. I can tell my friends that my daughter's a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. And I'm like, oh, my God. She was praying to the ancestral gods at my grandma's house. We have a shrine, a Buddhist Taoist shrine up. She's praying to the ancestors that I win the Pulitzer. And I was like, oh, no, I've created a monster. Oh, my God, I'm in high school all over again. This is terrible. And and um, so I was there at the announcement with my press pass, you know, pretending to be the press. But, I mean, I was the press because I was going to write this article about it. Uh uh, let's see. I lost to Hamilton and I definitely was, it was the humans, I think was the other play. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah there was, and there was another play. So basically, um, it was a Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. I can't remember who, I can't remember the three I should remember, but you know, the big one obviously was Hamilton that won. And, and, and so I gave a concession speech outside the school on a live stream. I wrote three speeches. One was a concession speech. One was the speech I would have read had I won. And one is if I was the finalist. So I read all three speeches on a live stream. And then I wrote this article for ABC Asian America about how I was not the first Asian American winner for drama 
Asian American female winner for drama um, uh, or finalist. And six years later, oh my God, I get up. <laughs> I'm at a Chinese restaurant. My friend, my friend Brian is like, good luck today. They're announcing the poll. I was like, no, they're not going to give it to me. Come on. This is like, I'm a solo performer with no master's degree. They're not going to give it to me. Right. And, and then my phone is blowing up going Pulitzer, Pulitzer finalist, Pulitzer. And I lost it. I fucking lost it because like, how crazy six years ago, I did this jokey thing where I was give you know, was had this ridiculous speech where I was like, Screw you, Lynn Manuel. You you didn't know who I was before. You know who I am now, bitch. <laughs> no play from LA. Come get you. You know and and um, yeah. So this was this has been a very much kiss the ring moment. It's been so incredibly validating because this has been a long haul slug. Also, spending all this time in New York when I premiered the show, I was like, oh yeah, this really is a theater town. <laughs> like I thought LA had enough theater because there's a lot of theater in LA. It's just gets overshadowed by film the good thing is you can watch a lot of theater for free and be the you know be be one of the 10 audience members in small theater and and um but there's a lot of really amazing stuff you know people are doing in LA just we just don't have that pipeline of recognition that New York does and um yeah but uh, yeah it's it's also crazy because it it I this was one of these unanticipated plays I had made um because it was you know, I didn't think we'd ever return back to civilization when the pandemic started. And so when I was sewing masks and running the anti-sewing squad, I just thought we're never going back to theater. It's going to be Zoom theater forever. And so I was just making the show a month into the pandemic. I started working on this show, which was just sort of documenting the things I was witnessing as someone who was a former performance artist turned mutual aid leader, um, just things I was seeing. And so New York Theater Workshop had a digital season, put it on the digital season, and then asked to uh, invited me to open their live season in New York. And I thought, they're kidding, right? Like, we're never going to reopen plus what? <laughs> Off-Broadway, what? Like, yeah. So this has all just been very odd, an amazing blessing. But but I, I will, you know, unlike other moments where I attempt to pretend to be modest, I'm not going to be modest. Like I totally fucking earned this. Like it was just, this was so hard this time of running this group. Like I've never ran around so much in my life trying to support other people. And, and um, not that I did this before to be a Pulitzer finalist, but, um, but, but yeah, it, it was, it was a, a crazy time that I, that I documented to the best I could. Gosh. And let's, uh, yeah, you just gave me chills thinking about it because, um, so, so very much earned, um, your contribution to, to theater, but your contribution to the effort to save humanity. I mean, it was just, it was just a really powerful, like what you were able to capture in your show. I think Tori and I talked about this, like you forget because you're so in the moment, you're just trying to survive Yeah, that, that it like everything that you covered in there was just holy there like, was so much i had to cut out right how do you fit a pandemic into a 90 minute show without just it being the news right you know and and um yeah there's so much but it was so weird because i think as a group so for context for folks who who are just tuning in i, I started a group called the auntie sewing squad because i sew my sets and props for my shows but i've never made medical equipment or anything of function i don't even really sew garments um, and was like, oh, I, I have an essential skill. I'm not, a, I'm not a non-essential performance any, artist anymore. And I, uh, but we, it felt like as the news unfolded, we were responding directly to everything about this pandemic from our sewing machines, whether it was Walter Reed asking us for masks, we turned them down, but this was after Trump, um, was treated for, for COVID. And we we're like, this is ridiculous. They have the budget to buy masks. We're not going to, we need to focus on communities like indigenous communities and places like that, um, rather than subsidize these billion dollar institutions with our, with our free labor, um, that, uh, supporting people, registering people to vote in Georgia. But it felt, yeah, like we were like, as crazy things were happening, we would often get the call before local governments were because local governments were so tied up in red tape that people couldn't figure out how to get stuff. Like we, people would just write us like to the point that the actual government was writing me, actual government agencies were writing me for masks. That's when I knew 
this is so broken and so such a mess right now that we, in ways that people will never understand if they if they weren't doing this work right now. So it felt like most of having to capture this was was trying to explain and share with you all like this is this is a group of uh, what started as mostly Asian American women who did something in the pandemic. This is a lot of 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 very generous people who worked together despite not knowing each other before this and stepped up where systems that are supposed to step up did not for us in this time. Well, and, you know, it's just such a beautiful metaphor with the sewing as well, because thinking about how you really are connecting communities together, that you were going beyond yourself, you know, quarantined and literally binding people together. Mm -hmm. Like really this, like that just, that, that did with me also, or sat with me. And also just one thing that, that I, 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 like, I got chills too listening to you talk because your vulnerability and uh, braveness putting everything out there about you. I mean, really just, it was just so stripped down about you you and everything you were going through. Whew. Yeah, I'm I'm telling you, I'm still, (laughs) I'm still processing. No, no, it's so meaningful because like it is, it can be quite lonely, obviously, as a solo performer. I have had, I've done actually a few shows about how lonely it is. Like I wrote this play with my first attempt with an ensemble called Cat Lady. And it was just about how lonely this life is where you relive this one fraction of your life as your life keeps going over and over again. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really wonderful to get feedback from people because there are some shows where it's like, I can't feel like I'm here hundred percent because I've done this show so many times. I hate saying that. Like, I, I don't want you to think you're getting ripped off when you watch the show, but you know, it's, um, you're not, you're not, you're getting, <laughs> getting 7,000% of me. I'm not dating right now because I, I have to make love to an audience every night, folks. You are my <laughs> monogamous partner, but you know, um, yeah. So it's like, I, yeah, it's, it, it is, it is, it is really, um, I, I'm really grateful to hear feedback that it is meaningful um after the fact because you know that's why that's why I got into this because people were were sharing their guts with me and I was meeting people who I wouldn't understand their lives any other way had they not done solo work so um so it's really great to to hear yes that I'm not I'm not just screaming at you for 90 minutes while you think about what you're going to buy at the grocery store the next day you know like how is that experience for you like reliving these these very traumatic past <laughs> years like day after day you're you're going through this you're embodying this it's experience so weird you know there there's a lot i forgot about the pandemic and i'm really glad that i was writing it down and had this strange opportunity to develop it all throughout the pandemic on zoom i would get and 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 when i was developing it on zoom it was so great in this weird low stakes way i realized how intimidated i am to develop something for a stage where there's all this money and resources put in versus you don't have anywhere else to be you're just at home in your underpants and you got to click open a zoom link and you can do your dishes while you watch me something about that made it really freeing to just write a lot of things um and and it was in a, I, I did it initially because it was, uh, because there were so many misunderstandings about how we worked as a group, right? And 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 people were like, oh, you should sell, some, oh, you should sell these, you should sell these. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not trying to run a store right now. I don't want to profit in this moment. You know, I, I'll find other ways to make a living and I have by doing a show about this, but like, you know, I, this is a moment where, where, where there are very vulnerable people who are, are dying because they don't have a, a air loops made of a, out of elastic and a piece of fabric in front of their face. This is not the moment where I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to make Batman themed masks for someone who already has a bunch of masks. Like that. No, I mean, other people did that and that's good for them. That's a choice you make, but um, that's not why I got into this. And, and uh, so a lot of, of making this was just to clarify to people, this is what we're under. This is what our labor is worth. We are not Amazon. Like, I think some people, like for the most part, people were very grateful and moved when they received a mask and you could see it was handmade. But there are other people who just thought it was like Amazon Prime and I just type a few things to her and sit back and a mask will show up. And it was like a mask of my choosing will show up. And it was just like, I can't, 
I can't work like this with, with folks. And I, I, and I was beginning to wonder if I was further rendering Asian labor invisible, right? Because we're just so removed from the people who usually make our garments, who are, are usually um, women, you know, overseas in Asia or countries of color are usually sewing your your items and we just become so removed to the time labor and care that it takes and and also the exploitation that has gone on to making these things and so i almost felt like so much of sharing this was this like look you look we had an auntie with cancer who passed away in this process please like understand this is not this cute thing that that we just do right um so, so that sort of keeps me going, but yeah, as far as maintenance, it's hard, right? I, um, when I was working the show out in New York, I was having a really difficult time because it just felt like I was just screaming nonstop. You know, I was still trying to put the scenes together because that's the pace of this pandemic. It was not like a clean one fight scene, one death scene. There were 6,000, there was, it was 1 million death scenes, right? So how you know, how, how does, you know, for, for people who are sort of tempered to a certain kind of drama and a performer who's sort of tempered to a certain way of performing, how, how do you find that breathing space as a dramatist? Right. Um, so yeah, it's crazy. Cause I, I basically, you haven't seen the show, you know, I peak like 15 minutes in, like there's a big blowout, you know, fight scene at the top and then another, and then another, and then another. Right. Um, so yeah, a lot of of trying to figure out how to take care of myself is uh, in this process is not to to think much about the try to try to absorb other things between the runs. Um, it was harder when I was touring Wong over the Cuckoo's Nest. That was a lot. Uh, that show I turned on and off for eight years, so I felt like I had to hold it in my body intermittently. That was really hard. Now I think it's okay because I I know to reach out to people, hang out with folks, try to work on other things just touch the show a few hours before the show in a line through, but not like spend all day. I mean, you know, when I was premiering the show and I was still trying to memorize all the lines, I had to hold it all day long, but, um, but yeah, I also built pockets of humor in for myself. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. I, w I was going to say you, you, you weave together all of these stories. It's just masterful and, and, so compelling to watch but you also you find the absurdity i mean it was absurd. I mean, it was so absurd it was, so, it was like robinson crusoe but with uber eats you know like it made no, <laughs> so much of this made no sense and and recreating a, a factory line in a in a situation where there was no supply chain and we couldn't be next to each other sewing you know, like that's, that's what I felt like I had like so much stupid unsolicited advice came my way. People were like, you should get the mayor to open up the factories. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> just, just knock on a bunch of doors and then bring in a bunch of people to work close to each other when we're supposed to be social distancing, like just stupid advice, you know? And, and so, so much of me was like, at first it started with me so patriotic and oh my god I love I love all my fellow humans to like will half of you shut up and either help or leave me alone you know you know like it just it was really hard and and so so much that's I think what feels I kind of wish that the people who pissed me off the most <laughs> with their dumb advice would watch the show and or that I got a that I'm a Pulitzer finalist and 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 then eat their words but um that's the bitter side of me talking but, uh, but, you know, mostly it was to honor, like, the work of these amazing volunteers, these volunteer aunties who sewed these masks. And and um, I can't name all of them in the show, obviously. Like, just naming all of them would be the entire show. But I try to offer snapshots of, of some of this generosity that I witnessed and, and just how incredible, like, this system that was sort of – that sort of had to exist outside of cap traditional capitalism was more effective – at least short term, right? Than than these systems that are supposed to protect us. Yeah, it's an incredible tribute. Thank to you all. Yeah, to all of the people that that were working with you to. Yeah, to do something good for humanity. Uh, what's wonderful is they're they're 
like two of them were at the show last night, you know, and people, when I did it in New York, it was really incredible because um, I do a tribute to Corky Lee, a photographer who passed away from COVID-19. Yes. And, and in New York, there'd be this audible sigh sometimes from the audience because they knew it. he, everyone in Chinatown, everyone in the Asian and Khmer community knew Corky Lee. So that was, that felt, that felt very powerful to come right out of the pandemic um, to be, you know, most people's first theater experience and, and, and to, to be able to acknowledge that in that moment. Um, and now, you know, to see aunties in the audience uh, is really very incredible. And um, yeah, it, I, it, it means so much to also, if, if I remember they're there to point them out in the audience and people like, whoa, you know, because to me, they're rock stars. They, they really, you know, I, this is not about me as much as it is about us. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you know, one of my favorite moments in the show is toward the end when you say who, I, I don't know the exact line, but it's about who, who was there for you or who it, it who helped you survive I was there yeah who, who helped you survive? you survive and I was yeah. there with my survivor buddy I know because we were <laughs> we we were our we helped each other survive yeah. like that that moment was really that's when like the water works like yeah <laughs> but um some people didn't but, have anybody I'm learning like they were just alone and yeah um yeah I mean, it, I, I've never not in the, uh, it's too late for me to join the military, but I've never, this was like, I don't want to ch cheapen that experience, but what I did to write this was I watched a lot of war movies and I actually read an article about the structure of a war movie because it did feel like we were soldiers who were bonded. Um, you know, you see each other, you're, I guess, in a uniform, you don't know, you hear snippets about what your life was back home before this war but you, you just love and you have each other's back because you're willing to fight this together. And that's what this sort of felt like was this sort of weird guerrilla army that, that I was thrown into commanding. And, and so I read a lot um, of uh, about the war genre, which is not a genre I typically read. I watched born on the 4th of July and, you know, and, and basically tracked the story along that, right. Cause it's a war movie is not nonstop shooting, shooting, shooting. I mean, some are, but but there are moments where the soldiers bond with each other. There's moments where you're just like, why why are we fighting? Um, there's the coming back from war, and the, the total like, you know, uh, especially after the Vietnam War, there were a bunch of people who were opposed to the war but never fought, um, and 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 then you know you come back maybe you know injured from the war, and you're just like, why did I do that? Like, uh, so reflecting on a lot of of uh of that genre is how i kind of laid out the show so um to find those pockets of you know what is the equivalent of the veterans day parade and what's the equivalent of that celebration and reflection and i feel that it feels pretty obvious right that it's a war movie or being that, in right? combat with sewing yeah, right like it's so moment. silly right because it's it's we're, we're who's so who fights with the sewing machine we do in this strange yeah. moment in history we're fighting with sewing machines mm -hmm. it's incredible that's incredible. Now that you see it, like now that you mentioned it, it makes sense seeing yeah. the show and like and your also your costume and everything. But yeah, um, I don't know. I, yeah, it, it's beautiful. Thank you. Very, very Thank beautiful. You. By I'm the way, really the set yeah. was gorgeous. Okay. Yeah, I, I did not build the set. It, that was okay. Georgia okay. Lee. Okay. And we worked a lot together because I, I, you know, I, I'm a scrappy performer before this point. Now I'm fan I had to join Equity. Oh, oh God, I got to join equity now and pay these dues. Oh. <laughs> and like, they're like, you can take, cause I paid my dues online and they're like, you can take your seat when you go to equity auditions. I'm like, audition for what? I only play Christina Wong. What is this? <laughs> but whatever. I'll, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, so I'm Christina, do you, do you ever imagine, you know, a lot of times when solo shows are written and then published, uh um, somebody else performed Performs them. Like it, I know yeah. Jane Wagner wrote Search for Signs, right? And even Heidi, um, Heidi's What the Constitution Means to Me, she found another. I I, I wish I saw that because I'm like, how can I pass this on? Uh, that's um, what I was going to ask. Do you I imagine don't know. that happening? I, I, in a weird way, maybe that's what makes this work so special in the moment is 
I'm very clear. I'm 44 now. I don't know that I'm going to do this in 10 years. Um, I don't plan to. I probably will move on to the next show. But very much a lot of the meta of some of my past shows is that I'm a character named I'm Christina Wong playing a character named Christina Wong. Um, and there are images, at least that that help tell the story, that have my face in it, right, in this, sh- in this particular show. Um, I mean... I, I, I'm still able-bodied and can do it right now, uh, but I would like it to live on in other ways. We do have a book. Um, I mean, maybe there's a way one day that the, the video archive can live on, but this is the problem because all the, all the, I'm an equity and all these union. This is the problem with union labor, folks. <laughs> you cannot just tape yourself and just put it out to the world. You have to get all this approval and that's a lot of money. So, um, so for now, this is just this very special moment that live audiences will just get to witness. And I just sort of figure, okay, it's what it is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have no idea. I also am like, I'm not trying to be cocky, but I don't know what live performer wants to run around this much. <laughs> this hurts. I am covered in bruises every night. This hurts. It is a very physical performance. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're crawling and jumping and yeah. No, I was exhausted when I in rehearsal. Now I'm now I, I'm I have a rhythm with it. But that, so New York Theater Workshop actually was like, would you like to see a physical therapist to just figure out ways to stretch and prepare before the show? And I was like, oh my god, they're worried about me. They're worried that I'm gonna they're worried. They think I'm gonna die during rehearsals, and I might. Yeah. Are you doing two shows a day at La Jolla on Playhouse weekends. on weekends? Oh, yes, wow. or on the weekends. So I haven't even hit. I haven't even gotten to fifty percent of the run. Where it's Friday today, right? So one show Friday, four on the weekends. So yeah, it's really, uh, yeah, it's rough. Um, and I'm just like lying in that equity cot, going, okay, okay, between two, okay, 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 come on, do this, you can do this. But um. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's crazy. I, I, before a show, I have what's called writer's weight. I gain a lot more weight when I'm writing and then I lose a lot of it during the show. During the show yeah. I have to get on a special diet and stuff and can't eat all the cheese I usually like to eat. What are your, what are your snacks of choice when you're, uh, when you're writing? Oh, when I'm writing, oh my God, I just eat everything. I just, my mouth constantly needs something even if I'm full, I have the worst eating habits um, because I feel like it's the only thing I can look forward to is like sweets, boba. Um, I, I, I write in an office in Chinatown and uh, there's uh hop to ha, which is a uh, honey walnut shrimp that I, I like. <laughs> I, I order that's my big treat sometimes, but um, I'm also a food bank influencer, which is my new project. And so I've gotten really into cooking and meal prep. Um, Wait, what, what is, what does yeah, that mean? That? So, so um, we have a food bank, which I talk about in the show called World of Harvest Food Bank. They, they gave us the CBD tinctures, which I distributed to the aunties. And it became our moment over like, we're drugging up the aunties. We're drugging them <laughs> up to keep them sewing. And it's, it's, um, it's not a citywide thing. It's, it's, um, but he, you know, he serves the whole city. Glenn is my friend who owns it and runs it. But basically you can shop there whether or not you're on EBT, which is wonderful. If you're someone like an actor who you have slow months um, and you, you know, by the time you realize it's slow, it's too late to apply for public assistance and then you get a job again. Right. And, but that's a lot of people in LA and there's a lot of people who are afraid to put up, be on a list because maybe they're undocumented or they're, you know, there's a lot of misunderstandings about how to go about getting public aid, but anyone can walk in and for a $55 quote unquote donation, you can get a heaping cart of groceries. And um, you usually end up leaving with two heaps of two things of groceries. So that became part of our ecosystem during the anti-sewing squad, both to the communities that we were trying to get stuff to, um, but also feeding ourselves. And so I'm their influencer. Like I make little videos for them and, um, and I'm interested in, you know, the whole, how much waste there is and, and also how, uh, how, how this exists, but yet there are so many food deserts all over the country. And we were meet, learning a lot about a lot of them during Auntie Sewing Squad. Navajo Nation is a huge food desert, literally. Um, only 13 grocery stores across an area the size of West Virginia. So, wow. yeah. 
So anyway, that's my new piece is, is trying to work with existing strategists in food insecure areas and trying to figure out how these tactics of theater performance, placemaking, like can improve the experience of food access. Um, that's what I got so far. I, I premiere it in three years. <laughs> did, did the, and this came about like this, this thinking of using performance, um, for for social good did that come like as a as a result of like a, a the 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 a COVID? Little, yeah um when i i've never run a, a a relief aid organization i've never run a garment company and suddenly here i am the sort of comedian performance artist running an 800 plus volunteer collective of aunties i had help obviously right but you know i was like i was general Right. I was overlord. And and um, by accident, because I started the Facebook group and people kept sending me the donations, the you know, and I became sort of the central point. And and I really saw what FEMA would look like if run by a comedian. Right. Like and or, or you know, and for me, I ran it sort of the way you'd run a theater collective um, or a theater project with community members who aren't professionals but you just want to meet them where they're at. You don't want to remind them constantly that they're not professionals. And if this was really Broadway, you would need to do this or that. No, you just go, okay, what do you have to give? And, and then figure out how to make that, you know, useful to the rest of the group. Right. And, and, and make them feel empowered in offering it. And, and I was like, oh, wow. Um, and a lot of the organizers who in our group were theater people, stage managers, were playwrights, right? Were choreographers who'd, who'd done this kind of work in their work as artists, but were sort of relaying this, you know, you don't do a community theater project for the $15, you know, gas stipend. You do it because of how it makes you feel. And so we were sort of cultivating that energy in the group and um, but also that thinking about how, who do we support first? Because we don't have an infinite, while we seem like we're doing a lot, we don't have infinite amounts of support. So we need to, to kind of strategically choose who's going to get the support to maximize, you know, its effects. Um, so yeah, to me, uh, the, one of the best compliments is we did have an auntie, auntie M who, who is not, uh, who does not work as an artist. And we had one of these zoom wrap up meetings or, you know, reflection meetings. And she said, next pandemic, look for the theater people because we were the ones who like got that shit organized the way no government entity who, who like instilled this morale and the sense of care in ways that these other institutions do not. Right. And um, that to me was like the the best compliment and, and a very much an indicator of what we're not where we not, are not valuing the thinking around how art artists and social practice or, you know, social practice projects are organized and resourceful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Super resourceful. Oh, yeah. You don't have a theater for me. I will still make this happen. You don't have this costume. I got a bed sheet. You know, like we we have that we have that way of thinking around it. We also know a lot of people like I was able to turn my relationship with that food bank into an entire, <laughs> you know, um, you know, system that, that just channeled all, you know, all these resources to all our communities, to our aunties, all these things. Yeah. We know how to talk network, right? Like it was all that kind of that slimy actor networking stuff that we finally used for good. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh my gosh. Christina Wong, you are a true inspiration. Thank it is, you. Thank it you. is such a pleasure to get to speak with you today. Like Tori and I are just so grateful and for your show, for for you spending time with us. And um we just hope that that everybody gets a chance to see this. And we do hope that the haters get a chance to see this. And the people I with do the, too. the really stupid ideas. We're talking Kiss to you. Like go ring. watch the show. Kiss the ring. Kiss the ring. Kiss the ring. Oh my God. I know. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Guess you need so, both in this world. It takes all kinds. <laughs> so Christina one of the things that we do at the end of our episode is we try to leave our listeners with something to do with a prompt. Yeah. So if you have something you you like to do in your own practice, if you would like to share it. This one is borrowed from David Lynch, but I found it really meaningful. Like 
think of 50 images or moments, like very visceral moments, scenes. That's what David Lynch does. He like writes out on this list and then he knows he has it. So like for me, I was like, oh my God, that moment where the auntie came to get my elastic to bring to this hospital, which cannot be named, right? Like these, like I just write these details. I don't start from, uh, op- you know, scene opens on and then one day, like I basically write a long list of like crazy things that happened, crazy moments I saw. And I try to figure out as much as possible how to, you know, what order they go into, how, how they weave into each other in a story. But I start there um, with like as listing as many of these visceral moments as possible before I go in. That is a great exercise. And I often, because I do autobiographical work, I, I will revisit tweets and um, Facebook oh. posts I've made. Ah. Sometimes sometimes there's a lot of accidental, beautiful brevity and humor and comments back and forth. So I, I would actually go back and I would find interactions between aunties that made me have these aha moments. And, and um, so you see some of that in the show where I actually read through some of their um, or, or, or perform out some of their concerns and things like, or, or thoughts as they came out in uh, Facebook posts. So, so I'm a gatherer. It sounds fun. I like, I, it's like a yard sale and then you organize the yard sale. Yard that's sale. how I do it. <laughs> that's a, That sounds like a really fun exercise because then you're figuring out how to create that connect. Yeah. The connection. Yeah. What's the, yeah. what's the through, what's the thread again? Sewing. Oh, the sewing metaphors. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> I'll stop. Okay. All right, Christina. We have. We have you. Thank you for your generosity. We have taken up way more time, and oh, we're so I can't grateful. Wait for this to go up. Oh, neither kiss can we. The ring. Haters, yes. kiss the ring. Yes. <laughs> Holy cow! We've had such a great time chatting with you about your show, about your life, about where you get your inspiration, and I would love to see the show again, and would love to see what you do next. Yeah, because so, you gave folks, us a taste of it. So it's Christina with a K, ChristinaWong.com. That has my calendar. I'm going to Portland Center Stage next, then Center Theater Group, um, with lots of shows in between. <laughs> Um, so please come out because this body can't do this forever. And I, I don't seem to have an understudy. So let's go. <laughs> yes. Let's go. Awesome. Everybody go. <gasps> Tori. Like uh, that was so much fun hearing how she came to be a solo performer and like just hearing her talk about it just, just gave me chills again. And, um, and just like, it's one of those things where you're like, this is, you know, like literally, you know, like theater, why theater, why theater, or like make theater that matters, all the things that people say about like theater, but you're like, this person, I mean, granted, the show is a byproduct of, of her effort, but I also think like, look what, look what it's led to, you know, look at how, how this is leading to another project that is like really going to shed light on something that is really like once you you know her her next project about food insecurity and in, in, in food deserts right so um yeah it, it, truly inspirational um everybody should go see the show absolutely the show. and i know it started out of this uh need she saw need that that needed to be fulfilled right that people needed masks and she just got to work like boots to the ground doing doing the work for the greater good but also you know we talk about this a lot like how do you make a living as an artist so i'm i'm so happy that she was able to also figure out a way to make a living through this art but it started from a place of helping for the greater good right it right. did, you know, it didn't start as, hey, I'm going to have a, a hit show and be a, <laughs> but, and, you know, but thank goodness, too, that she was taking notes and mm-hmm. keeping track of what she was experiencing, what Document- she was experiencing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because uh, honestly, I saw this show as being a historical document. So did I, Tori. I mm-hmm. totally, like, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, when, People 50 years from now wonder what it was like. Like, this would be the thing I would point to. I would point to this. And I would point to the I Have a Story anthology because that was, like, what kids were going through. But this 
for sure is like it it covered so much and and as we talked about we're like we forgot because we were so in survival mode that it's just like we just like keep going keep going and don't stop to think because we can't we can't we can't stop to freak out because we have kids we have like work we were still trying to stay alive and keep you know our heads above water I mean, and it, it was... wasn't until we see the show and we're like oh my gosh really? one trauma after another it was just one thing after another yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and and she, but she also, as we say, she finds the humor in it. So there's those moments of Funny levity show. Yes. where you get to just, yes. I, I mean, belly laugh. Yes, <laughs> right. And yes. then it it just has those, the amazing balance of of uh, a, a feeling getting to really sit with all of that trauma, but then also getting to experience laughter with this yes. group of people who went through the same thing you know uh, those those moments so yeah wow and also Props. like that there were good things uh, there were p- good good things. people good, good people, people trying to help other help. people yeah. yes yeah yes so many takeaways like i said i'm still yeah. processing because it was just um yeah such a such a powerful connecting performance because I did feel very connected to people in that room, you know, and, and, and to that story. Oh gosh. Props to Christina Wong. Yay. Christina Wong. Such oh yeah. 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 All right. All right. With that, Tori, uh, you know, have a, have a beautiful rest of your week. I am, I am traveling right now, but I'll be back in San Diego soon enough. And, um, and we'll hopefully get to hang out in person again soon and check out some other theater. Um, but, uh, for now I say like, go, go write something, Tori. I know you have some deadlines coming up. I do. That, I do. I have some deadlines and I've got, need to I, I, I've, been, out. I've been semi-productive. <laughs> yes. Yes. You, you go, so, girl. You, you write the thing. I have a, I have a script. You've got today. deadlines too. <laughs> <laughs> I got to knock that out. But uh, yeah, but but all is well. So again, if uh, if you're new to the show, welcome. If you want to check out um, Christina Wong's show, Christina Wong Sweatshop Overlord, it's at La Jolla Playhouse. It will be running through October 16th. She is a powerhouse. The show is phenomenal. Um, don't even read anything about it. Just show up and go check it out and be like amazed by by how beautiful it is, by how moving it is, and by and and celebrate that you survived the past few years and uh and yeah and and hug the the ones you love, right? Yep. Um and then follow us on Instagram and follow the podcast. And if you heard something that you liked on this show, then feel free to share it with your friends and um yeah. And That's take it. take 2 seconds to give us a rating wherever you're yeah. listening to your podcast, yeah. please. That would be lovely. Yes. Uh, yeah, we would appreciate it. Okay, and until next time. Bye playwrights. Bye, bye playwrights. <laughs>